Well, hello, welcome to Sound Engagement, a podcast devoted to engaging with our culture and community from a Christian worldview. I can't even finish my little spiel without go Peter. No, go ahead. <laughs> Tell him your name. I'm Tell Brad Mills. I'm Peter Anderson. Okay. Look at that. That was loud. Yeah, was you were good. you were smothering a laugh the whole time, which that is yeah. uh, which is unfair. So how is uh, dirty? Uh, California. California, dude, it's burning. It's, it is brutal right now. There's, there's, um, God telling you to leave, come move over here. It's possible. <laughs> okay. Yeah. We, we have, uh, yeah, just the, the air quality has been horrendous and, you know, just to be frank, like that we were all, we were meeting outside as a church because of the, you know, restrictions and guidelines from the governor. And there's literally no concern at all about air quality all of a sudden. Like air quality is off the charts right now in terms of how bad it is. It's in the dangerous zone. You're not supposed to be outside unless you absolutely have to go outside. It's, it's that kind of level. And yet with COVID, you know, the, the fears of COVID, almost the numbers are down to like a third of what they were six weeks ago in our county. And they'll still say you should be outside when you gather for worship, or if you're concerned about air quality, just stay home. And so it's just gotten so, so ridiculous that it's, it's frustrating, but goodness, air quality's impacted my, my voice, my, <clears throat> as I'm coughing here, <laughs> I, wow. mean, I, I feel like wow. I'm constantly um, taking, oh taking some flu medication, which I, it's not for the flu. It's just to clear my throat um, oh. because it's yeah. pretty bad. Yeah. Is it now? Is that and that's pretty really really bad where you are? Where in? Uh, yeah. Yeah. We have a the creek fire is not far from us. Um, in fact, like the the closest, um, if you want to get up into the mountains, one of the nearest places people go is Shaver Lake, and yeah. fire fire has decimated a lot of the forest surrounding the lake, and oh. it's it's still going. And containment has been slow. They're trying to focus on protecting the the structures of course and letting it burn to to roads and freeways and stuff but that's that's just gonna allow it to to decimate a lot of the forest which unfortunately it's it's needed you know i mean it the they don't clear the forest like they should because of environmentalist concerns which is so ironic to me that yeah that they're not even willing to admit that they just did finally but then they immediately said because of climate change oh yeah but yeah lack, they, of, uh, lack of logging like i mean all of this stuff and think of all the i was just thinking all the little animals that are that are dead you know it's just all the right. little wildlife and all the yeah, other stuff backfired. everything they were trying to protect is it's, gone i just can't so it, it makes zero sense the policy <clears throat> so and i'm i was glad i know trump um had a a briefing with uh, the governor and several people from the state, and in fact, our sheriff Sheriff Mims was there, um, which which the governor called her the mayor, uh, which was funny. But um, she's the one person in the briefing room that didn't have a mask on, which I loved. Uh, everyone oh. else, <laughs> everyone else has. One that's Trump. Yeah, and um, wasn't she the one that just basically said to the governor because he wanted her to like arrest people right. that were breaking COVID rules, and she was like, um. I'm trying to find all the people that you are, re you know, released from prison right now. Exactly. I like your mayor. She's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, she's not the mayor. She's the sheriff. But oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, but our mayor is good. 
good as well. Anyways, yeah, it's yeah. just it's crazy. The so I just got back from vacation and um, went to the coast, and even on the coast there was ash falling on the trucks, and um, and affecting the air, which was the beginning of my kind of. Uh, my health being compromised because I was, I love running on the beach during that week, you know, vacation. And so I would get out there and run. And by the third day, uh, the air was, was really, really bad. And I never recovered from that since I haven't even run because the air quality is just going to make my, my health worse. So, Oh my gosh. Well, hopefully you're okay. Man. Oh, I'm good. <clears throat> and it's, it, it, no, no fevers or anything else. So I, I'm, I'm pretty right. certain that's not, um, COVID. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, well, um, we're excited about the podcast today. Yeah. Uh, today we have a guest named Ian Hewitt and, um, he's, uh, he's a, he's a lawyer. He actually works as a litigator. He's published uh, several scholarly articles on law. He's also done some stuff on religion as well as uh, legal implications of the blockchain. Um, he's an editor of Stasios, uh, Stasios.net. And if y'all listened to one of our episodes earlier uh, with Carmen uh, Schober, she, uh, he, uh, they both got... Um, Co-founded uh, it, right? Yeah, they co-founded Stasios, and they started that website. He's also legal. He has a legal commentary that has appeared on the stream. He, um, 2018, 2019, he was a judicial clerk at the Augusta County Circuit Court in uh, Statue, Virginia, and he received his uh, JD from Washington Lee University in 2018. Um, yeah, hmm. he's a smart guy, very smart guy. He just uh, we talk quite a bit about um, uh, basically. Uh, free exercise, free exercise, how that's different from free speech, how that's benefit for how that's that is very beneficial for us as Christians, why we should be concerned about keeping free clause, free exercise clause, and especially as it protects our worship. Uh, talk a little bit about the Equality Act, uh, talk about the Basta case, uh, the recent decision from Justice Gorsuch. Was that a good decision? Was it a, mm. was it a bad decision? It was a uh, He's also written extensively on Judge Roberts. Uh, he has he's got a very interesting view on him, or different view on him. And then uh, yeah, we talk about a little bit about the election and some of his concerns about anti-racism. But I uh, really hope you all will enjoy the show. Yeah, we covered a lot of ground, and there was plenty more that we could have talked about. But I think it's yeah. uh, it's an interesting, encouraging episode. I hope uh, people are as fascinated by it as we were. So Ian, uh, we're here with Ian Hewitt. Um, Ian, I'd, I'd just love for you to tell our uh, listeners uh, just a little bit about yourself. And I know that you started the uh, the podcast and website Stasios. We had Carmen on a few weeks ago. It was a, such a joy and a delight to have her. But uh, tell us what you do and what influenced you to start uh, Stasios. I'm a litigation attorney, and I also publish academic work in law and religion in particular. Um, and I've published recently on the free exercise clause of the U.S. Constitution. <clears throat> and Stasios is a website dedicated to promoting a culture of boldness and intellectual engagement in the church. Um, and Carmen Schober, who you spoke to recently, and I started it together. Uh, Carmen and I know each other from undergrad um, before she went to graduate school to study English and I went to law school. And we ended up hanging out uh, in Virginia when I was living and working there after law school and discovered that we had uh, come to a lot of the same conclusions about 
what the church needed and decided to start Stasios to provide the, the voice and the perspective that we thought was missing in the church. Mm -hmm. So you, how often do you write? Do you have a, do you have kind of a, a, a plan, a schedule that you try to stick to, or is it just whatever, whatever comes to mind and you just take the time to write? Yeah, it depends on what exactly I'm working on. So for Stasios right now, I'm doing a series on eschatology, uh, and I just finished writing the second piece in that series. It's kind of inside baseball theology, but also cultural engagement, and there's an apologetics dimension to it as well. So that's involved a lot of research. I, I really wanted to make sure I understood all the different major perspectives in eschatology throughout church history before I, I sat down and wrote that. But if it's a topic I'm already familiar with, you know, then I might do, um, you know, assuming I, I have a pretty busy schedule in terms of my practice, I might do like one Stasios column a month, uh, edit some other stuff. I'll, I'll typically be working on like a longer term law review article, uh, like one that I just put out with Regent Law Review um, in this, this most recent edition. And I do a podcast called Books of Kings also, which is uh, commentary on the historicity of the Old Testament with mm. my friend Caleb, and that comes out about once a month. We try to do an episode once a month. Oh, fascinating. Wow. Yeah, what, what got you into uh, history, you know, the history of the Old Testament? Yeah. Well, I'm a big history buff, um, but that really was a result of my coming to Christ. I really, wow. the process of becoming a Christian sort of learned to enjoy learning for the first time because I was grappling with all of these intellectual obstacles that I'd set between myself and God uh, which turned out to be not particularly well informed hmm. and in the process of tackling those um, you first sort of watching debates and watching content online and discussing with friends but then also digging into those questions by by reading books i realized that i just enjoyed learning and thinking about new things um, and i just started um, digging into history in, in large part to investigate you know questions like the history of the resurrection and the role of the church in history Wow. But also because I realized that there are so many illuminating parallels in history for what's going on now. And I, I think that history is so cyclical. And I, I think that this is the biblical view as well. This is the view of, of authors like Daniel, that you can reliably anticipate the sort of general trends of the progression of the culture and, and of our country by looking at sort of similar historical parallels. Yeah, yeah. Brad, did you want to say something? Yeah, that's fascinating. I'm actually, well, I love history too. I'm re I just read Herodotus and, uh, you know, the histories of Herodotus and I love the old ancient, you know, Near East world and Lucian and uh, all the really good writers. It's uh, Plutarch. I don't know if you're a fan of Plutarch. Plutarch's fascinating. Oh, yeah. I've read Plutarch's live. Uh, yeah. Times maybe. Wow. Herodotus is fantastic. And Herodotus is tremendously relevant to the mm -hmm. Bible um, multiple times throughout his history. You know, one mm -hmm. funny thing about Herodotus is, I don't know if you picked up on this, but Herodotus repeatedly throughout his history expresses skepticism that the ocean exists. And the sort of geography of ancient classical people was that the world was centered on the Mediterranean Sea. And certain people thought that out beyond the continents, Europe and Asia and Africa, there was this ocean, quote unquote, that encircled the whole world. But mm. Was a you know he was a forward-thinking, educated guy, and he thought this belief in the ocean was for the roots. And he said, you know, people only believe in this because of ancient poets, 
Um, I've never seen it firsthand. And his arguments against the existence of the ocean were suspiciously familiar to contemporary atheist arguments. He demand immediate personal experience, set these arbitrary criteria, say that it's mm. backwards, it's what uneducated peasants believe. It's an amusing parallel. That, that's kind of a minor example of a historical parallel, but it's a funny one. Yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, no, he was, well, I just liked him too, because I mean, it was just, uh, I, I love all like the, uh, the Greek and barbarians in the fifth century and all the little fights that are going on. And it's actually, it was a really good read. I mean, there was a lot of intrigue and murder and, you know, it was, it, it wasn't like a dolphin. He saved somebody or something. I, I can't remember like drown, somebody's drowning and he's got like these little descriptions of these giant ants that would go off and like conquer people and yeah it's really kind of fascinating um brad did you want yeah i I was go ahead yeah what was that oh i was just saying the books of kings uh, is that way as well which is the focus of our podcast um fascinating engaging story of intrigue and geopolitics and Hmm. i would say that the the author of the books of kings who's usually called the deuteronomist is really even, although I like Herodotus um, and enjoy reading him, I think he's really even a bit more scientific in his approach than Herodotus is. He's very systematic about directing you to the original sources that he went and looked at to put the history together. Yeah. Well, what, what I mean, yeah, I could talk that all day. I mean, especially like, yeah. Yeah. Well, what, what kind of, it seems like, you know, a lot of us as Christians, I mean, Brad and I, we reconnected just a few weeks ago, it was a few months ago. We had the same, we had some serious concerns, um, just where the church was going. Uh, you know, it just, it, I would love to hear what, what was your itch? I mean, what, what kind of got you and Carmen together and what kind of inspired you to say, you know, we need to, we need to write this, we need to get together. Was there anything in particular that was really kind of itching you to, to, to stand up to some of these things or, and what things were that would they be? Well, one observation that Carmen and I both had that we were talking about, and this was probably the key insight that led to us starting Stasios, is we realized that there are a lot of Christians that are consuming content in the vein of Jordan Peterson. And the appeal of this kind of content for Christians, sometimes referred to loosely as the intellectual dark web, is these people are typically burrowing down to and interrogating sort of the underlying assumptions of the dominant narrative in the culture, not just kind of quibbling with this or that detail or saying, uh, well, the free market is the best way to accomplish this, but actually asking fundamentally are the premises that are are used by academia, the entertainment and industry and so forth, um, are they correct? And there are a lot of Christians that are interested in this content, but we noticed there weren't really any Christian voices involved in the conversation, which is funny because a lot of these IDW figures have a sort of appreciation for Christianity. Uh, Jordan Peterson has some intellectual interest in Christianity and thinks that its it's symbols are kind of a helpful way to live your life, uh, to organize your life, even though he personally doesn't think it's true. Um, So it's funny that we, the church has not produced any, any sort of public intellectuals that are, are participating mm-hmm. in this circle of people. So we wanted to provide that voice um, and set up mm-hmm. a Christian outlet that's sort of oriented towards that space, but from a Christ-centered perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, go ahead, Brad. Did you want to say something? Yeah. 
No, I just, I just yeah, think that's okay. that's a helpful contribution. We need, we need more of the church speaking into these, uh, pushing back against a cultural narrative that has just been adopted, basically from a social media um, onslaught. I mean, it just seems like vague notions of everything. <laughs> I don't know, get get adopted, and and there's no historical backing. It's a revisionist kind of. Um, uh, take on the world and um and people don't even have any clue what they're what they're liking and advocating for and the consequences of those actions um the dangerous consequences that you know not knowing history are going to repeat themselves um so i i'm thankful that we you know that we're seeing more of that and in fact i i've been encouraged the last few weeks just seeing more um more people who have been quiet or haven't really used wanted to use social media maybe because of the the dangers of you know speaking out and, and knowing that you're going to get blasted um mm. but it's like i do feel like more people are becoming bold emboldened to speak out because they're just seeing the consequences of silence like the the riots that are just don't seem to have an end in sight right now. Um, I don't know. I, I know that was a, a rambling, but just it, it, it all, it, it all seems to be um, the consequences of, of the church largely remaining um, isolated from these issues, thinking that we could just kind of do our own thing. Um, That's good. I'm, I'm really glad you think so. I, I often see, I feel at least that since we started this website about a year ago, things in the broader church have gotten significantly worse in these areas, mm -hmm. not, not just because of the new prevalence of the white racial penance gospel, and I would say churches, major evangelical institutions apostatizing to that, but I mean, the church just retreating in general in terms of intellectual engagement. So Liberty University had fairly recently Jordan Peterson come speak on their campus. Um, Christians recognize that millions of people are watching Peterson lecture about symbolism in the Bible. But then after that happened, Liberty University fired its entire philosophy department. So we know that people really? are looking for a dissenting yeah. perspective that the church can provide, but we don't seem to be interested in providing that perspective. Hmm. Why, why did they fire? I didn't know that. I didn't, do you, do you know why they fired the philosophy department? There, there weren't enough people in the classes. So they just reasoned from a market hmm. perspective. It doesn't make economic sense for us to- hmm. Yeah. Philosophy professors. The problem with that is the, a church institution is not simply a business institution. If, if a church institution followed the demands of the market, then church institutions wouldn't exist. The market wants secular progressivism. That's mm. why all the corporations are, are virtue signaling mm. about how progressive they are. So you can't sort of let the culture steer the ship of the church. If you're uh, a leader at Liberty University, you have to you have to be the one influencing the direction that the market is going in, not following the market. Yeah, I mean, it's fa fascinating you say that because, I mean, a lot of pastors even uh, that I've heard all throughout the country right after George Floyd never brought up race issues, all of a sudden just looks upon their congregation and says something like, you know, I look upon all of you and I think we're too white. You know, he never would have said that like a week prior, but all of a sudden kind of giving people while they're going through a pandemic you know, many of them losing their jobs, uh, probably severely spiritually depressed is now going to say to them, well, you're too white, you know, and it's like, huh, 
that's kind of interesting that you're using that kind of language right now. Why, why do you, I don't want to get too off the outline, but what, what, what's your, what's your take on why we are so anti-intellectual? Cause it's, it feels like a sense of betrayal almost, you know, I, I hear a lot of Christians, myself included, that I have actually felt, if I could share a little bit about my own story. I have felt the past three years, I've gotten more spiritual nourishment from people that are like Steven Pinker, George Peterson, definitely, um, John McWhorter, Coleman Hughes. Um, I could keep going down the list and my, the people that are Christians, not a lot. And these are people that are like helping me engage the world. I would have not told you what critical race theory was. I know it a whole lot more because of two atheists called Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay, you know, <laughs> just not because I've read something by, you know, a well-known president of a of a school i mean so why why do you think that is what what's uh is there something yeah, you think in the just in the water consuming the content put out by those people but none of the people that you just listed are believers so it right that underscores why we wanted to start stasios but i think the church has been setting itself up for this for a while um, not just by accommodating itself to cultural progressivism but on a deeper level by being anti-intellectual and by being passive um, and those two things are very much intertwined. If you uh, don't see your faith as one of intellectual engagement, and if you see kind of any sort of chastisement um, as necessarily righteous and something that you need to accommodate yourself to and, and also not push back on, then when something like the white racial penance gospel is going is presented in the church, um, you're not going to push back on it. You're going to say the the passive Christian thing to do is to accommodate myself to the person who's chastising me, not not ask myself, is this righteous? Is this just? But assume good faith on the part of the chastiser. And also, you're not going to be able to think in terms of the categories that are going to let you give a counter argument and a defense for the hope that is within you, because the church has de-intellectualized, uh, de-emphasized church history, de-emphasized apologetics. Um, and why has the church done this? A, a big part is that the Christians see these things as adversarial. And we believe for some reason um, that obviously has nothing to do with the Bible or the character of Christ in the New Testament, that being Christ-like is about being non-adversarial and agreeable. So mm -hmm. I think these things are a vicious cycle. Um, the passivity and the anti-intellectualism of the church have taken us to this place together. Yeah. I mean, I could definitely see that. I mean, cause it's, well, it's a struggle too, because I did go to seminary and Brad and I went to seminary and I saw a lot of very contentious men as well. And I went to a fundamentalist church when I was, um, when I first came to faith and I saw the opposite side. I saw how contentious I once was when I was a young believer. Um, I was very, very argumentative and it wasn't really about the heart. And um, I remember that just leaving such a kind of a, yeah, I just felt like a bad taste in my mouth after kind of engaging that. I didn't feel like it was really, you know, what are you doing this for to win an argument? Not really to, you know, to, to get people's hearts or to seek people out. And then I guess that's where the, a lot of the anti-racism kind of, you know, I could see where it, it, it quells the kind of the, the, the contentious fundamentalist over here by saying, well, you're not listening, you know, you're not, you, why, why don't you hear the cries of the oppressed? Here you are in your, you know, your white, um, comfortable privilege, you know, that they would say. And I think a lot of, I think there's something inside a lot of people, especially when they become very contentious and then type, they somewhat repent for that, from that. 
it's like, huh, I'm okay for you to call me out on my privilege because that sounds very much like gospel, you know? And then the next thing you know, it's like, oh, you know, I'm hearing the cries of the oppressed. Wow, I, I seem like a jerk, an a-hole if I don't hear the cries of the oppressed. Jesus loves the oppressed. Next thing you know, you're hearing these people, you know, especially people of color, you know that there's been a lot of systemic racism it, or maybe you doubt, maybe you deny it. And then you start hearing their stories and then you start feeling like, wow, if I don't advocate for them, I'm back, you know, with the people that I don't want to be like anymore. So it just seems like this kind of that. I guess, yeah, it seems like this 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 trick of the anti-racist movement. I mean, which I would love to talk to you about because I mean, what what are some of your concerns um, after that? I would love to get your opinion on free exercise, how that replaces free exercise. Mm -hmm. But you know, how, what's your concerns on on that? Like how anti-racism just applies any kind of disagreement because they say. If you disagree, or it's because you're comfortable in your privilege, um, those types of things. What What are your real concerns on that? Yeah, I think I should say because you know because I hear this from, for example, law school friends who are believers. They have this impression that actually there is a lot of um, intellectual contentiousness in the church, and I think that um, people like us who you know, have all the works of Jonathan Edwards on our bookshelves. We, because we spend so much time in the circle of people that enjoy discussing these issues and butting heads about these things, it's easy for us to forget that the broader, at least I, I would emphatically insist, the broader church is not like that at all. And I know many, many evangelical millennials um, who are too scared to even tell their secular friends that they're Christians. They're not even sure if their secular friends know that they're believers, you know. I, I, I can unironically ask friends of mine um, who are evangelical millennials that question, you know, just so-and-so you're telling me about that you, you've been praying about, are you sure they even know you're a Christian? Um, and, and, you know, it's, that should be an easy answer, but unfortunately it's not. And yeah. the reason that it's not an easy answer is because sharing a new worldview with someone is a disagreeable act and Christianity is an especially disagreeable religion. So we've neutered our ability to, to share the gospel in even the barest way by making the Christian character about one dimensional agreeableness. And, and I do think, you know, regardless of my experience as uh, someone who went to law school or your experience as someone who went to seminary, that oh, overwhelmingly the problem with the church is passivity and not um, an excess of contentiousness. Otherwise, we wouldn't see this phenomenon. But there's yeah. a into your other question, you know, I think one point that we need to address is this notion that uh, well, Jesus wants us to side with the oppressed. And so therefore we have to accept um, the narrative of white racial penance that's promoted by, by politically progressive elements within the church. I think the great irony there is that the people of God throughout the Old Testament narrative and the New Testament and church history are always fighting against the cultural and the economic and the political elite. Um, whether you go back to Ahiah, uh, Elijah, um, various Old Testament prophets, or uh, you know Jesus and Paul confronting the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these people were always fighting the power structure and the consensus of their day. And so to extrapolate from that, that what Christians really need to do today is have the same opinion as the New York Times, as Google, as academia, as Netflix, as Goldman Sachs. He's saying the same things about race that Goldman Sachs is saying. This is an overwhelming consensus wow. of 
yeah. the cultural and economic and political elite. So yes, mm. Jesus wants us to side with the oppressed and Jesus wants us to rebel against secular cosmopolitan power structures, which is what the prophets were always doing. They were always rebelling against the, the relatively secular elite um, in Judah or Israel. And to then say that we therefore need to side with that elite is, is inverting the whole point. Um, if the elite is in consensus about something, then we need to question that consensus. And one mm -hmm. area where we need to question it is all of this, uh, this white privilege narrative, um, the other sorts of devices that the cultural left uses to control the conversation about race. Yeah. One, one of the things that I wanted to um, just zero in on, on with the, I guess a, a, a big track of anti-racism right now is to take the, uh, get rid, try to eliminate symbols of bigotry, right? Supposed bigotry. Um, and so removing statues and uh, any, any kind of vestige of, of that revisioned history. Um, so should, should the church be concerned about this? Are these, are these related at all to, um, you know, to the church or should we just say, well, that's, you know, the culture and, um, and, you know, it shouldn't really bother us too much. Yeah. I'd, I'd encourage everyone to watch the footage of the controversy around the Louis the ninth statue in St. Louis. Um, St. Louis was named after King Louis the ninth of France, um, who was, was a sincerely devoutly Christian King, um, did a lot of great things. He, he cared for the oppressed and the poor. He defended Christians that were being attacked in the Holy Land. Um, he, he wasn't a perfect man, but on the whole, an exemplary Christian statesman. And the people surrounding this statue and demanding that it be torn down and demanding that the city of St. Louis change its name, uh, they can't explain why they're doing this. Uh, a Catholic priest came down to this protest and was questioning them, trying to teach them about the history of St. Louis. And people were shouting out, uh, just utterly meaningless and incoherent objections to Louis IX, saying that well, we need to tear the statue down because medieval French people were white, or saying that uh, Louis IX attacked Africans, uh, which is extremely misleading. He attacked Arab Muslims in North Africa as part of a defensive war. Um, hmm. So they're, they're wrong on too many levels to get into when they suggest that somehow he oppressed black sub-Saharan Africans. But none of these people have any idea why they're tearing the statue down. Hmm. So someone like Louis IX or someone like George Washington, um, Theodore Roosevelt, Winston Churchill, these people need to be torn down, not because of anything that they actually did, because the people who want to tear these statues down by and large don't know anything about what they did. They need to be torn down just incidentally as symbols of Western heritage. And that will inevitably lead to the deconstruction of the church. That's where this always goes. That's where it went for the Jacobins, for the Soviet Union. And in those Louis IX videos, uh, the Catholic priest at one point, he's a, he's a kind of genial guy. I'm guessing he was a little bit naive about what the protesters' motives were. And he said to them, you know, you, you guys come on down to uh, the St. Louis Cathedral and see some of the history that St. Louis did. And a couple of the protesters said, eventually we're taking that too. Um, and I think we should listen to those people. I think even if those other protesters aren't aware of it, that is necessarily um, where this is going to go. Uh, and we're naive if we don't recognize that now.
Well, yeah. one I really focus on like what you, your specialty is too, because um, I really wanted to have you on because it seems like many many Christians are just not aware of how free exercise clauses are beneficial to their faith and beliefs. I mean, because when it really comes down to it, it seems like free exercise, free speech. I'd love to hear your um, how you just how uh, you know how those two are different. But um, tell us why or how this is a passion of yours. How we should address and apply free exercise as we engage in discussion, because I know that's that's really your specialty. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, so the, the free exercise clause and the free speech clause are very different. Um, the free exercise clause protects all kinds of non-speech activities involved in the practice of religion. So they're both in the First Amendment. Um, the First Amendment was drafted by James Madison. And it, uh, the free exercise clause, protects your ability to tithe to your church, to attend the worship services of your choice, to attend religious schools. Um, without the free exercise clause and without meaningful free exercise protection, the U.S. government could in the future do all the sorts of things that totalitarian secular regimes have typically done. So it could uh, shut down specific churches, shut down religious schools, uh, which Western secularists often like to do in Europe. It could make it illegal for you to tithe. Uh, you name it. It could order Muslims and Jews to eat bacon. Um, the Free Exercise Clause protects all of these things. It's it's one of our most important constitutional rights. And none of the things that I, I just said are really about speech. Um, and I, if anyone thinks that what I'm suggesting, that all these hypotheticals sound too outlandish to ever happen in the United States, this answers the second part of your question, which is how I became passionate about this. Um, I'd encourage people to read a little bit about, um, and I've written about this, I, I did in my most recent Law Review article, the historical persecution of Mormons in the United States in the 19th century by the federal government. Um, the federal government in the 19th century, when there was this virulently anti-Mormon sentiment throughout the whole country, um, and Mormons were not just a few people at this point, by the way, in 1890, the overwhelming majority of the population of Utah uh, was Mormon, over 200,000 people. But the federal government um, had passed laws um, making uh, the existence of the Mormon church illegal, ordering that all the property of the Mormon church be confiscated. In Idaho, the state government passed a law making it categorically illegal for Mormons to vote. Mormons just per se, uh, if you remember of the Church of Latter-day Saints had their rights stripped for them. And all these things were done with the approval of the Supreme Court at the time. The Supreme Court said none of these things contradicted the Free Exercise Clause. And that's because the Supreme Court in the late 19th century adopted an interpretation of the Free Exercise Clause under which it had no actual concrete power. It was more just kind of like a sentiment, but not something you could really use in court. Um, fortunately, we're not there anymore under the Roberts Court. We, this is really the most pro-free exercise Supreme Court right now since a Calvin Coolidge appointee was a chief justice. Oh, wow. No. The, the anti-Mormon discrimination and persecution of the late 19th century is an example of what can happen to even a quite large religious group if there's not substantive free exercise protection. So that's why it's important. And reading about what happened to Mormons in the late 19th century is a big part of what inspired me to dig into this area of law and start writing about it. How does that, re and how does that relate to some of your concerns about like the, you've already mentioned some of the radical 
left and you know some of the protests i mean does it does it relate as well on you know as far as this new kind of uh critical race theory postmodernism there's so many names i could say to that you know neo-marxism i don't know if i'm really as comfortable with that but i mean what's your what's your take on yeah on that well, it does in an indirect way insofar as, and I'm sure we'll talk about the election a bit more further on down the road, but um, the left, I think, since 2016 has been united around the idea that what happened in November 2016 was a fluke, um, was the almost eschatology of the left broke and, and failed to manifest itself, and it must never be allowed to happen again. It was like a just a, a metaphysical um glitch in the matrix or something like that. And we need to, our singular purpose needs to be making sure that we never again lose. And I think that what we can expect to see if the Democrats take the White House and the Senate um, in, in this election is that they will by hook or by crook attempt to establish some sort of one party state. Um, I think there are sort of quasi legal ways, there are a variety of ways that the left could do this. Um, the left has been what I'm saying sounds conspiratorial, has been talking about this very openly in New York Times columns um, on packing the court in uh, books uh, like It's Time to Fight Dirty, which was reviewed in the New York Times, which advocated packing the Supreme Court, which means abolishing judicial independence, abolishing the Constitution in effect, um, which advocated statehood for D.C. and Puerto Rico in order to, to pack the Senate uh, and a legal filing. Uh, in, endorsed by people like Dick Durbin, uh, like Gillibrand, uh, warned the Supreme Court that if the Supreme Court did not start ruling in a left-wing way, then the Democrats would move to abolish judicial independence. They didn't use those exact words, but they said, we will restructure the system of government to minimize the influence of conservative politics on the Supreme Court. So these, these are all mainstream powerful people that want to, in effect, create uh, a one-party state and restructure our system of government. And if that were to happen, then we would, in all likelihood, eventually lose our free exercise rights. Um, whether that happened, uh, you know, five or 10 years from now or a few decades in the future, uh, it's inevitable in, in that scenario, unless there was a major sort of civil upheaval and, and that program was, was thrown off, that the Supreme Court would rule um, more like it did in the late 19th century, that the free exercise clause doesn't actually protect the autonomy of churches, uh, your freedom to worship and to practice your faith. With the with the um, current state of the nation and its response to to uh, COVID lockdowns and just the the carte blanche authority of governors, um, it it does concern me that even there was just a lot of complicit um, response from even conservatives during that time in terms of just just going along going with the flow is that is there a concern or I mean do you think without getting conspiratorial here I mean um, without thinking that there's some massive pandemic under underway um, have you seen um, concerns? Well, I should say, and the reason I said, you know, what I said a moment ago wasn't conspiratorial is that this stuff is all out in the open. Um, sure. The New York Times articles are, are there. The New York Times articles are being put out to prime the readership of the New York Times for the idea that we should restructure the government to create kind of a one-party state. 
But you're right that um, the COVID-19 shutdown is a major free exercise issue. Um, the Sixth Circuit actually overturned uh, shutdown orders of the governor of Kentucky, Andy Bashir, that very uh, maliciously and openly singled out churches for mm. tougher restrictions than other kinds of entities. And that's one of the rights that we have under the free exercise clause specifically. Um, the government, when it issues some kind of general law, like a shutdown order, it cannot treat churches more harshly than other entities. And we see this all over the country, even in my state, New Hampshire, uh, where we have a, a pretty good governor, Sununu, who's good on a number of different issues. He issued uh, executive orders on the shutdown that, and I don't even necessarily think he realized this or this was based on ill intent, but the text of the shutdown orders is more restrictive on churches than on other kinds of entities. I, he's probably a secular Republican, I think. Um, I, I live in a very secular area. And I think it's almost just in the air of our political discourse that churches are unimportant, um, you know, because all, all educated people know that religion is, is nonsense, really, even though it's kind of like a nice you know, social group to, to do once a week, um, even if you attend one of like a mainline church. Um, it's unimportant. And so we need to prioritize it at the bottom underneath like bars, restaurants, um, other kinds of public gatherings. And so that is the result that we see in, uh, in these kinds of shutdown orders. And we've, we've seen that in New Hampshire, that there are more restrictions on churches. That's unconstitutional under the U.S. Free Exercise Clause. And the more these disparate orders are challenged, the more we're going to see them overthrown by federal circuit courts. Mm. I mean, yeah, I mean, I was just actually just wondering too, though, you know, could you elaborate a little bit more on, on how you could see free, free exercise and free speech, um, how that could be something that will no longer be with us if, say, for example, the Equality Act gets passed? I, I bring up the Equality Act because, I mean, it has some really interesting language about transgenderism that if I don't support my son, who is a six-year-old little boy, and he says to me, Daddy, I'm a little girl, um, it, it leaves very vague language that I could very well lose my son. Now, I brought this up to friends. I brought this up to family, and they think I'm totally over-exaggerating. They think I'm being, you know, uh, that I'm just, you know, I, I'm, I've been called all right. I'm believing in too many conspiracy theories. I'm reading too much Fox News. You name it. But, I mean, it's very vague. It's very vague language. I mean, is that is that something that we as Christians really should be concerned of? And, and, and uh Yeah. I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Yeah. Well, the purpose of the Equality Act, I think on its face, is really to limit religious liberty. Um, that's why it includes, I'm sure you've looked at the act, there's a particular section in there that says the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1993 shall not provide a claim or defense under this act. Um, there's another piece of legislation that was recently introduced by Kamala Harris, the Do No Harm Act, and the Do No Harm Act would systematically repeal uh, RIFRA or the Religious Freedom Restoration Act in all kinds of areas, not, not just uh, sexual orientation and gender identity, but also sex discrimination. Um, that, and that would really just repeal RIFRA entirely. Now, we need to talk a little bit about what RIFRA is. Um, in, when, in 1990, there was a famous Supreme Court decision called Employment Division v. Smith. And in that decision, uh, which was under the Rehnquist Court, it was written by Justice Scalia um, and Chief Justice Rehnquist at the time joined the decision. 
the Supreme Court said, um, we've had a long time substantive free exercise protections, at least theoretically in our case law. The free exercise clause is something you can actually use in court as a defense, but we don't like that anymore. We're, we're now, Scalia said, going to go back to the late 19th century cases where the free exercise clause had no real power. This was the, the absolute worst uh, Supreme Court decision, certainly in this century, uh, well, it wasn't in this century, <laughs> the last 50, you know, 70 years or so um, for the church and for religious liberty. Uh, and it was a, an utterly judicially bankrupt decision. It failed every single metric on which you could judge a decision. Uh, no engagement with the original intent or text of the clause. Uh, but because I think Justice Scalia uh, was not sincerely intellectually interested in Christianity, um, he, he just didn't, it wasn't a serious concern of his that this would threaten the religious liberty of Christians. And that's what it's done. Every major loss since then for Christians, for the church um, in court, in religious liberty issues has been due to this decision by Antonin Scalia. And at the time when this was decision was issued in 1990, there was a broad bipartisan consensus by both the left and the right. The <laughs> Christian Legal Society and the ACLU um, came together and said, this was a horrible decision and we need to, since we can't use the constitution anymore to vindicate religious liberty because um, you know, the Constitution, the only way to enforce it is through the courts, and the court just gutted uh, the free exercise clause of the U.S. Constitution in 1990, will instead vindicate religious liberty with statutes. And so Congress passed and Bill Clinton signed RIFRA, which is a statute that tries to take the place of the free exercise clause. Wow. Now, that, I had no idea that Scalia was part of that. that that's just, yeah, that's, that's really... Scalia was the, the main driving force um, behind it. He... He wrote a decision that was specifically designed to systematically eliminate religious liberty as a legal construct. He, he basically, he tore it up and he sowed the ground with salt. He, every single thing he could say in that decision to undermine religious liberty, he said. Um, so, I mean, he was, he was the most anti-religious liberty justice since the late 19th century um, anti-Mormon court, um, which, which they were really just trying to target Mormons. So RIFRA was passed to try to take the place of the free exercise clause, but we can't put our trust in statutes because statutes can be overturned. A simple majority um, you know, can overturn this statute as opposed to it's much harder to amend the US constitution uh, or, or change its interpretation through the courts. Um, and so RIFRA is going to be eliminated. That's a, that's a given. Um, at one, at one point or another, I mean, if, if the Republicans hold up for the Senate, we're going to be fine for a while. But in all likelihood, RIFRA is going to come under attack. Establishment Republicans are not going to defend it. It's going to go out the window. Either the Equality Act is going to get rid of the last vestiges of, of RIFRA um, or the Do No Harm Act is just going to officially repeal it. It's gone. So instead of looking to RIFRA, as we've done for the last few decades, we need to increasingly look to the free exercise clause. And we're very fortunate that under the court, under Chief Justice John Roberts, the free exercise clause has been reinvigorated. It's not as bad as it was in 1990 when Scalia wrote this opinion. Um, and part of that is even some people on the left, like uh, Justice Elena Kagan, who's an Obama appointee, and uh, Chief and Justice Breyer, um, to a certain extent, are sympathetic to religious liberty claims by evangelical Christians even. Hmm. Uh, Justice 
and she she has repeatedly sided against the ACLU and sided with evangelical Christian groups in these religious liberty cases. I think really? because she's a conservative Jew, so she has some genuine appreciation for the importance of. And this is Kagan, Kagan that has done that. Oh, really? Kagan. Oh, interesting. Uh, she's oh. she's my favorite of the liberal justices. So be, because oh. we have this opening, we need to bring cases and make arguments. Christian lawyers need to do this, and and church institutions need to hire and direct their lawyers to make these kinds of arguments to invigorate and build up again more and more the free exercise clause, establish more case law that will give us free exercise protections. That way, when either Kamala Harris, uh, excuse me, I think it's Kamala, trying to pronounce it right, uh, yeah. <laughs> or, or you know, whoever the next Kamala Harris is eventually overturns RIFRA, we will have a strong free exercise clause. And then to get rid of religious liberty, you, the left needs to do some sort of coup or restructuring of the government or packing the court, uh, which is mm -hmm. at least, uh, God willing, harder to do than just overturning a statute through a majority in a legislature. And what would you say to people like, you know, so if I could speak for, I don't know, so Jamar Tisby probably would say something like this. I don't know if you're aware of Jamar Tisby, you know. Oh, okay. So he's read. I would encourage you to read him because he's going to he's going to be the next, um, I would say, Jesse Jackson in evangelical circles. He's very, very important to read. We, Brad and I did a, a podcast on him. I encourage all Christians to read him because he's the next new, um, I would say, rising star from the, I would say, Christian left and, uh, you know, radical. So he would say something like this. Um, I, you know, I don't want to, I just want to paraphrase him, but like religious freedom has been used to like, you know, uh, pass, um, discrimination. Uh, you know, so my, my, uh, my church, my white church won't allow black Christians from, you know, worshiping at my, at my sanctuary. He would say something like, well, what, you know, if you look at religious freedom, look at all the, look at all the ways that that has been used as a, basically a club uh, to, to basically discriminate against other people. What is, what's, what's your defense against that? Like, how, how would you, how would you respond to that? Well, obviously you can't speak for Jamar Tisby, but I, I would want him to give me a single example of um, there's certainly none now. Uh, you know, maybe there's like a, a church in the middle of the woods somewhere of five people of whom that would be true. Um, but I've I've seen no illustrations of that. Um, you know, I think you know we're dealing right now with, I think, a large scale apostasy to the the racial penance gospel. You have you know people like Dan Cathy um, kneeling down and scrubbing the shoes of. Uh, Lecrae, the Christian rapper, and saying, I'm doing this to express a sense of shame over my race. So th the fact that people like you and I are trying to resolve that problem is proof that the last thing that we need to be worried about right now is what, you know, evangelical mega churches are going to be saying that we have a whites only policy. That's just a completely unrealistic um, fantasy scenario. Mm -hmm. I don't think that there is really an authentic history of religious liberty being used as a club um, to beat people over the head or oppress other people. I, I think that that's uh, it's just a, a contrivance. It's a fake narrative. Um, the Supreme Court has heard arguments like this before. Mm. The famous Sherbert v. Verner decision, the state that was taking the anti-religious liberty position in that case, this was a case back in the 60s, expressed the concern and said, people will in bad faith use the free exercise clause if you give it too much power to bring all kinds of crazy claims. Mm -hmm. And the Supreme Court said, the state presented no evidence that this kind of malingering or deceit is a real problem. It doesn't really work. 
it's not really realistic to uh, for someone who says they're a minister of marijuana to get out of a drug charge. Although I, I support drug decriminalization, I think that's not going to be a result of a more robust free exercise clause that you can now be a drug dealer. Um, it, it's not going to allow you to say, I revere running red lights and now you can run red lights. There's, ne there's yeah. never been any evidence this was a real problem. It's mm. just, just a fantasy scenario. Um, to just piggyback off that, you you have written a little bit about um, Title Seven and and the Bostock case, and I I wonder from my own perspective, I don't know enough about the cases, and I don't have the time to read, <laughs> and so I tend to just hear talking points that generally lead towards a you know negative interpretation of most of the decisions that have come out recently from the Supreme Court in terms of um, their, you know, their impact upon the church. But it does seem like you have a, a more balanced view of that and maybe even a, a more charitable view towards Roberts than many of the conservatives, uh, conservative pundits do. And part, part of where my view comes from here is, um, you know, not only did I read all the most recent decisions of most of the current justices um, every day in, in law school for three years, um, which is, you know, you mentioned someone like Ben Ben Shapiro has a, like a very, a very uncharitable view of Roberts. Um, but, you know, Ben Shapiro was, I think it's been a long time since he was engaged in the full-time practice of law. Um, and uh, no doubt he reads Supreme Court decisions and understands them, but I think he probably only reads the big hot button cases. Um, you know, I, I was reading all this stuff fairly recently. I like listening to Supreme Court oral arguments. Um, this happened because I was very into moot court and moot court tournaments in, in law school. So to prepare for those, I was constantly listening to these arguments. And after doing that for years, I just feel like I know and I at least understand the worldviews and the concerns and the personalities of the justices. It's just inevitable that um, listening to and reading people for years, you're you're going to kind of get a sense of that. And I feel like I I really understand John Roberts um, and where he's coming from. But I'm maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. I can say something about Bostock and the Title VII decision. Bostock, I think, uh, in terms of a textualist analysis, which is what uh, Justice Gorsuch is, Bostock was a correct decision. Um, Just give us a little synopsis of what Bostock is for those of us who probably yeah, don't. Yeah, not everybody. <laughs> so, yeah. Bostock held that, type, that Title VII of the Civil Rights Act prevents an employer from firing an employee because of, uh, quote unquote, their sexual orientation. Um, and the argument is, is like this. And this is how textualists think. Textualists say we need to, we need to not look at the original intent. We need to look at the text of the law, because what is a law but the text? The legislature sits down and they, they don't pass down to us a cloud of their intentions. They pass down the words in the statute. And in a society based on the rule of law, we need to look to the words. This is what uh, Justice Gorsuch would say if you were interviewing him. And so the Bostock decision reasoned this way. Uh, Title VII prohibits sex discrimination. And if you are an employer and you fire an employee uh, who is a gay man for being in a relationship with a man, but you wouldn't fire a female employee for being in a relationship with a man. You are of necessity looking to the sex of the person to discriminate. Now, you can say, well, you know, obviously they weren't thinking of that at the time. That just seems very silly to me. 
Uh, this is an extreme outlandish consequence of Title VII. But I would say on a textualist analysis, all those things are really just criticisms of Title VII. I, I think there's a, a real debate to be had about whether it even makes sense to have a per se uh, prohibition on sex discrimination for exactly these kinds of reasons. But if you are going to have a per se prohibition that says, if you fire someone and it has to do with their sex, then you know that's gonna lead to this outcome. Now, obviously I strongly believe in religious liberty. So, so how do I reconcile um, these two beliefs? The, the problem, and this is the big problem with evangelical coverage of the Bostock decision on Title VII, is that Bostock only addressed the question of what the statute means. It doesn't address the question of whether it's unconstitutional as applied in certain cases. And this is a very important distinction. And one reason we know it's important is it's already come up a lot. It comes up with respect to the sex of ministers. So Title VII is a pro se prohibition, uh, excuse me, is a per se, not a pro se, a per se prohibition on all sex discrimination with no exceptions for religious groups and churches. So technically, uh, a church that requires its ministers be male, a mosque that requires the imam be male, Orthodox Jewish congregations require that their religious leadership be male, they're all in violation of the text of Title VII. The reason we don't see the government going after these groups under Title VII is because it can't do that under the Free Exercise Clause of the U.S. Constitution. Whatever the statute says, the Free Exercise Clause affords you an additional layer of protection. And Gorsuch specifically and clearly addressed this in the decision. And he made a point of saying none of the petitioners here, the people who allegedly fired their employees for, for being gay or transgender, none of them claimed a religious exemption. They were not saying we are religious groups and we need to be protected for that reason. These were allegedly, at least this is the way the Supreme Court approached the issue, just businesses who didn't like gay or transgender people. So the next question, and this is the question that Gorsuch and Roberts have teed up for us, is going to be whether Title VII is unconstitutional as applied in certain cases. I, I am confident this is my prediction, although I have a caveat to it that we can get into later. But I am confident that at least if Trump wins in 2020 and possibly even if Biden wins in 2020, that when that question comes for the Supreme Court, they will say Title VII is unconstitutional as applied to religious groups to impose on their religious beliefs. Um, and I think that's what Gorsuch and Roberts intended all along. They're trying to broker this kind of great compromise between the cultural left and between cultural conservatives. Huh. That's fascinating. That's really good. Well, and also, yeah, I was, I was also just wondering too, because I mean, Alito and Thomas though, I mean, they were arguing though in their defense that they didn't feel like they went in like far enough. Is that right? And they should have coming through legislation. I mean, I'm trying to talk to Liam because, you know, Judge Thomas and as well as Judge Alito, they didn't feel like the court was trying to, you know, the court was trying to convince readers that it's merely enforcing the terms of the statutes. And they were feeling like that was preposterous. And I think Alito wrote, you know, can you talk to me a little bit about why, why they did resist it? I mean, because they felt like, yeah. yeah, okay. Alito wrote uh, dissent 
based on textualist grounds and saying that, um, at least that's the way he framed it, and saying that this wasn't really a serious textual analysis. Um, they were just ruling to come up with a politically favorable outcome. Um, and I, I really get the sense reading Alito's dissent, it's, and it's been a while since I've read it, but I, I do recall this, that Alito just thought, you know, kind of what I articulated earlier, that, you know, come on, no, no, and this is true, no one when they passed Title VII was thinking of sexual orientation or transgender issues, and, and that's a fact. So it does strike, and this is, I think, more the way Alito in particular thinks, it does just strike the average person as an absurd outcome. Um, I don't deny that. I do think that as a strict textualist analysis, and this is the way that Gorsuch had always reasoned, the, the decision was correct in terms of the interpretation of Title VII. Mm -hmm. I, I, you want to argue it's a ridiculous outcome. What you need to argue is we shouldn't have prohibited sex discrimination in Title VII, that that just wasn't a, a coherent idea. Okay. Yeah, uh, that, that that really helps. Where do you where do you feel like? Uh, I mean, do you have any do you have any encouragement for Christians though? Like, because I, we're talking a lot about a different variety of different issues. I mean, how should Christians view some of these these issues? I mean, I, I, a lot of people that are on the right would see this as a pretty uh, depressing case and see it as doom and gloom. The liberals are quote taking over, but um, yeah, what it sounds like your view is a lot more encouraging. I would say. You know, you're taking a much, yeah. The most pro free exercise court um, since Harlan Stone, who's a Calvin. Wow. Religion, was yeah. That's, in, well, that's encouraging. No, it is. That's uh, one, one, one encouraging thing. Uh, what's your prediction of November 3rd? I mean, what, what do you think is going to, what do you think is going to come down to? Do you think it's going to come down to like mail-in voting? Do you think Biden wins? What's your, what's your take? Uh, I haven't looked into mail-in voting in depth, but I, I'm going to have to say that I think it's going to be a close election and a toss-up. Um, obviously, I, you know, I would be delighted if I'm mistaken and Trump wins in a landslide, but um, I think it's it's going to be close and that it go either way. I was in 2016, um, once Trump had secured the Republican nomination, and even through like the Axis Hollywood controversy, I was very loudly telling people that I thought that Trump was going to win. Um, but I, I can't say that now. For a few reasons, I think that um, you know he hasn't done as much as he intended to on immigration. Uh, I'm glad I liked his executive order on social media censorship recently. Um, systematic social media censorship is a huge problem that's going to influence the election. But I, I fear that what he did there was too little, too late. It might have been more constructive if he'd done it earlier. Um, obviously, the, the media is engaging in a higher degree of systematic fraud now. So. All these things are, are concerns for me in terms of how the election is going to come out. But on the other hand, of course, you know, in as late as October in 2016, uh, Clinton had a seven point lead in the aggregate of all the polls above Trump. And that's a, about where we are now. So I, you know, I can see it going either way, but I, I'm afraid it's going to be very close. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. You think it's going to, what was the prediction? Someone came out recently and said the, um, I think it was, Oh, I can't remember his name, but it came out and said that uh, it's going to come down to a Supreme Court decision and John Roberts is going to decide. Yeah. He said, really. I, put, I, put, I put that on my Facebook wall. Yeah. Oh, that was you. Yeah. Okay. I think it was from uh, the Daily Wire. Yeah. It was a writer. It wasn't Ben Shapiro. It was just some other guy. No. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. No, it was, a, it was a political figure who has not been in the limelight recently as much, but 
Yeah, I'd be interested in looking at their reasoning. Um, I think that, you know, and I've, I had not thought about this before, but I can tell you that I think that if that does happen, you know, as long as it's, you know, if, if the Trump administration takes the case to the Supreme Court and the Trump administration unambiguously lost and, and their case is just a sham, then, then they are going to lose. But I think if it's reasonably on the fence, I think you're, you're going to see um, the Roberts court fined for Trump. And one reason I think that is I think a deep part of John Roberts's uh, worldview and motives is he wants to protect judicial independence. And if you look at the way Roberts rules, and this is a way in which John Roberts is very different from the, the other justices that conservatives think of as traitors. So, you know, think of like Blackman, Souter, Stevens, uh, you can go all the way back to Earl Warren. These are people who were appointed as Republicans, but then they went on to vote with the left all the time. I think this happened just because when you put agreeable, impressionable people in the Washington, D.C. Beltway social circle, all their friends that they you know go to the opera with, they're all strong progressives. And so inevitably they get pushed in that direction. And they don't want to be ostracized by their friends. Um, John Roberts is not like that in terms of his personality. Uh, he has a leadership type personality. Uh, all the justices on the court, including on the left, attest to that. And he does not vote with the left all the time. And in fact, on the contrary, he only votes with the left on certain hot button pop popular issues that he thinks if he doesn't vote with the left will cause people to see the court as an illegitimate institution that's overly political. On every case that's below the radar, basically, he votes with the conservatives. These are not the actions of someone who is just a sellout, who's a secret leftist. Mm -hmm. And in the cases where he does vote with the left, like the Obamacare case, John Roberts always finagles some sort of backdoor into the decision that's actually helpful to conservatives. He did this in the Obamacare case. Hmm. Um, he's, he's very diplomatic. He's always playing some sort of long game. And hmm. I think his, his biggest fear, I think what keeps John Roberts up at night is that the, and he knows that only the left would do this, that one side of the political spectrum will portray the court as an illegitimate political institution and they will use that as a pretext to abolish judicial independence. And it, by the way, one reason I think this is possible is this was discussed under FDR. FDR wanted to pack the court, which would abolish judicial independence. I think that's that's John Roberts' fear. The left will, by politicizing the court, pack it, abolish judicial independence. Once you've abolished judicial independence- What does that mean though? When you say pack the court, I mean, help me out. Like I'm not really aware say like doubling the number of justices on the Supreme Court and then making all the new appointees Democrats. Oh, okay. So like 18 Supreme Court justices, basically. Yeah, exactly. So okay. the essence of our system is checks and balances between the different branches. Wow. Um, and that's why we have the appointment system set up that we do. So, you know, while, while it's true that there is no exact number of Supreme Court justices in the U.S. Constitution, the reason the appointment system is set up this way is so that one side is not able to pack the court and turn it into a rubber stamp. Um, the left, there have been multiple New York Times articles, whole books, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the legal briefing, Google the enemy of the court brief, uh, Dick Durbin and Gillibrand signed this thing, threatening or advocating packing the court. The left really wants to do this. It would make the Supreme Court into a rubber stamp for the legislature. 
And if that were to happen, we would in effect have no constitution. Without the constitution being repealed, it would be gone. And why? Do, what's their justification for doing that? Why, why do they want to do this? Okay, well, in their legal briefing, which I, I referred to as the enemy of the court brief, a lot of lawyers call it that, they said that the court is, is overly political um, for mm-hmm. conservatives. Now, what they mean by that is the, the left wing of American jurisprudence has long taken the position that the Second Amendment affords zero protection at all for private firearms ownership, that it actually has no, no application to anyone today. It applied to state militias during the founding era and nothing like a state militia they think exists today. So it, it's purely kind of academic text in the Constitution. Mm-hmm. Uh, Congress could, if it wanted to, enact a gun company. Even moderate left-wing justices um, think this. And the, the Democrats were very worried that the Supreme Court was going to slightly expand Second Amendment rights in this case. And so they warned the court, if you expand Second Amendment rights, we will see you as overly political. Uh, we will try to restructure our system of government to minimize the quote unquote, the influence of politics on the court. What they mean is, you know, just a conservative perspective that affirms rights like the Second Amendment have have real power in the courts. Um, so that's their official justification. But, you know, look at the titles of these books, this, the New York Times book review on this book, How to Time to Fight Dirty is what it's called. These people really, they don't think there's any political justification for what they're doing. Really, their their motives are give us the power. We want the power. We shouldn't have lost in 2016. Never should have happened. Um, We need to have a one-party state. And it it might not be through packing the court. A more gradualist way of accomplishing that would be giving, uh, you know, D.C. a couple of senators, uh, maybe Puerto Rico, you know, some some of these, uh, some states that were purple have already flipped and now blue states. So one way or another, I think, and, and I will Although I don't know how the election is going to come out, I will firmly make this prediction: uh, if if the Democrats take the White House and the Senate in November, we will not have another Republican president under the current electoral system. Um, in order for there to be on the political right again um, an executive in the United States, that would need to be the result of some sort of you know great civil upheaval or crisis or something that changed our, our whole electoral. Um, system because the the left has been thinking for four years about how to permanently capture it and they have some pretty pretty good strategically sound ways to do it lined up and I, that's going to be their number one agenda if they win in November. Yeah, yeah. Oh. that's terrifying. Yeah, what um, not? If that's any encouragement, I'm a long range optimist. You know, I, I look at history and I see there's there have been all these examples of what we would now call the cultural left. Um, standing on top of societies and thinking we've totally won, we've got everything under control, tradition is banished to the past, and then lo and behold, what happened, but what historians would call a culturally reactionary movement rose up and threw off everything that that the left had accomplished. Um, I feel like this happens on every page of human history. Um, So, Well, I just read read the, uh, um, I've been reading the Apocrypha because I never read it and just read the uh, the Book of Judith, which is a really good book. Yeah, fascinating. Well, going to say uh, Maccabees and Maccabees as well. Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, cool. Judith, yeah, Judith goes in there and just uh, cuts the guy's head off, and she becomes like kind of like this Queen Esther. Uh, really fascinating. Yeah. So, 
one thing, one historical event I get a lot of encouragement from as I think about, you know, think of the, the world of the New Testament. It's this very religiously conservative world um, that Jesus is walking in. That was not the case just a couple of centuries before the New Testament. In, in the era of Seleucid rule over Judea, anyone who was anyone was not a religious conservative. If you were someone in Seleucid Judea, you said, I believe in Greek atomism and Epicureanism, um, God or God, no influence in human affairs. I, I want to get rid of my old Jewish name. I want to speak Greek. Um, I want to adopt Greek sexual values, and I'm going to go to the gymnasium. And they they were integrating into this cosmopolitan, secular, more culturally progressive culture, um, the whole upper class in ancient Judea. And the Maccabean revolt totally reversed that. And suddenly we have a very religiously conservative Jewish culture in the world of the New Testament. It, I guarantee if if we could go back and be religious Jews just before the Maccabean revolt, we would be just as discouraged as we are now. We would think you know, mm. where, where are the ones being consigned to the past, the, the victory of the left is inevitable. Look, they control all the institutions, all the elite um, mm. are on their side, economically, culturally, but that's not what happened. So ultimately, even though I think it may get much worse in the short term, if Biden wins, ultimately, I think that, what the left is doing is not sustainable um, and it will implode on itself. Hmm. Well, yeah. Well, especially if they're all about destruction, eventually it comes back at you. <laughs> so yeah. always have to construct a window of allowable discourse. And that requires casting out more and more people casting out, you know, JK Rowling. Um, and the mm -hmm. more people that they cast out, the more people they're going to. Drive. I'm so glad that she's doubling down though. And she hasn't apologized. I'm so proud of her. Yeah. Right. I'm like, yeah. No. Uh, <laughs> No, did Brad, did you, this is, this is great. Yeah. No, no, we can, we can end with that um, terrifying prediction, but bringing it back around to the long-term optimism. I like that. I tried to end on a, a positive. That's right. Yeah. It's yeah. fascinating, man. Yeah. I, I mean, I think, I feel like this podcast can go on for another hour or two just on like getting to all the legal stuff. I felt like we were just starting to get, we were just getting started. I, um, yeah, that's it's it's not an area that I I'm very knowledgeable in, and and uh, would you would you have any um, encouragement on uh, where Christians should go if they want to get a better understanding of law and uh, these new cases and you know anyway, it's just well, any popular book might that popular book. yeah yeah I don't know about popular books I so my my latest law review article for Regent, um, which I, I just set up a personal website, ianhewitt.com, it's the first article linked on there. It is really a whole history of free exercise clause in the United States. So I, I take oh, you wow. through how, how it was established, the anti-Mormon cases, um, how people like Douglas uh, reinvigorated the clause, Scalia killing it, and then where we are with the Roberts Court. Um, and I, I make predictions about how the Roberts Court is going to continue to reinvigorate the clause and, and give us more religious liberty rights under the U.S. Constitution. So that's really a general overview. I, I wrote it, you know, so that non-lawyers could read it and digest it. So, you know, if you were a, a pastor who's concerned about this issue, um, I, I at least hope that that's a good introductory resource. Awesome. Yeah, we'll link to that article for awesome. our listeners. Yeah. Thanks, Ian. No, I appreciate you, you coming on. This is this is this is great, uh, especially just sharing a very different perspective. Or I, I not yeah, just uh, opening our eyes to certain things. I never knew that about uh, Scalia. I always thought like he was the 
the savior of the conservative party in a lot of ways. So, well, I, I, I admire a lot of things about Scalia. He's a great writer. Um, I'm sure I, I would have gotten along with him well. But the, where that came from is Scalia had this very unusual view of Christianity, that Christianity is solely a matter of inner piety. It's just about your private thoughts. And so he said, huh. for example, one time that your Christianity should have no more influence on your political views than it has on what kind of toothpaste you buy. So I think one reason Scalia wasn't really worried about the religious liberty of Christians is he thought Christianity isn't about what you do anyway. It's all about just you. It's between you and God in your own bedroom. And mm. I think that's because he, he fundamentally misunderstood the essence of the Christian faith. From him and to him and through him are all things our Christianity needs to orient every area of our life. It's not just a matter of personal taste. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Well, that was great. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Thank Ian. Yeah, I really appreciate your time. Everything. This is this is wonderful. I'm looking yeah, up your. Always happy to talk about this stuff. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for coming on. Well, that was, yeah, that was good. I know he had more to say. He has his actual his articles um, are worth reading. Very uh, well researched. And um, he does. He does a. He's a good writer. I've been, I enjoyed reading a, a few of the articles in preparation for for that. But I, I would say he can. He we could have gone off on several different tangents. And I, I'm glad we kept it toward you know in the in the sphere of kind of talking about um, free exercise and and the you know, which is quarter, sort of his forte. But um, but yeah, fascinating information that I am very unprepared to talk about. So that, that was why it, it, I, I learned a lot. I did too. Yeah. I, did, I couldn't even tell you what the difference was between free exercise and free speech. I've been like, you know, if you had asked me two hours yeah. ago, I'd been like, I don't know. <laughs> so for exercise, sure. that's what you do at uh, CrossFit, right? I just wanted to mention it because Bethany can do it. I had to do it. We well, got to do it like every time now, but you know, I, uh, he was, yeah, he's, he's brilliant, man. He's, uh, I, he's got a brain on, on that, uh, on the, on that body. Warriors. Yeah. Um, to be able to just full case, case law out and, and examples of, mm. uh, I mean, that, that's fascinating to me because uh, yeah. I can hardly remember names. Um, but, yeah. Yes, I, I learned a lot, and I'm glad we we had him on. I, I do encourage our people to continue to our listeners to to follow up on on his um, article on free clause. I I will be uh, reading that myself and learning more. Yeah, and just tell our listeners too. It's e n i a n hewitt h u y e t t dot com. Look him mm -hmm. up, and yeah, he is yeah, like I said, an editor at uh, stacios.net. All right. Well, y'all just uh, subscribe. Thank you for listening and um, make sure you subscribe. That's how Brad and I get, you know, we, we want to afford a um, cruise for a conference yeah. be one year. We need a really expensive boat. So y'all make sure you subscribe. That would make sense. <laughs> yep. All right. Well, yeah. it's good. Yeah. Yes. Give us a, a rating <laughs> review. We appreciate it. Thanks. <laughs>